0: Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Law Today podcast presented by Foley and Lardner. Each month, we are joined by a different thought leader to discuss current legal trends in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Judy Waltz, partner and chair of Foley's Healthcare Industry team. It's a pleasure to have you joining us today. Before we begin our show, I want to remind you to subscribe to Healthcare Law Today, either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app please visit our website at healthcarelawtoday.com. For today's show, my colleagues, Emily Weber and Lauren Carboni, talk with Dr. Casey Wolfington of Vale Health, Eagle Valley Behavioral Health about behavioral health reform and a people first approach to behavioral health that is accessible, affordable, and equitable. Take it away, Emily.
1: Thanks, Judy. Um, And I'd like to
0: introduce myself.
1: I'm Emily Weber. I'm a partner at Foley and Larner in the Denver office. Uh, My focus is on healthcare regulatory and transactional work. And I'd like to introduce our two other guests today. We have Dr. Casey Wolfington, who is the Senior Director of Community Behavioral Health at Vail Health Eagle Valley Behavioral Health, as well as Lauren Carboni, who is a senior associate here at Foley and Larner in Denver, who also focuses on healthcare regulatory and transactional work. So, Lauren, maybe you can take it away with our first topic and question.
2: Thanks, Emily. And looking forward to our discussion today with Casey. Um, so, we wanted to talk a bit today about uh, behavioral health, um, which is Casey's expertise. Um, so let's let's just start off right from there. Um, so Colorado like many other states is at a crossroads right now regarding behavioral health reform. Um, Casey, what legal constraints do you do you see in in uh, the ability to provide care?
3: right absolutely it's such a good question and you're right you know I think the fact is that, Colorado was at a crossroads and has been for a while. But like so many things, um, behavioral health reform and the need for it was really highlighted as a result of this pandemic. You know, I think some of the most important concepts when we think about behavioral health reform, we think about parity, uh, we think about HIPAA, we think about telehealth. And, you know, I'm sure across our conversation today, we'll talk about all of these. But you know, I think something that I have a lot of conversations with is this concept of parity and what it actually means, um, and whether or not it truly applies to behavioral health. Especially, I'm in a rural community, and so um, you know, this idea of parity is seen as this new concept. But parity has been around since the 1960s. But the concept of parity enforcement is something that's gotten a lot more attention lately. And really, when we look at uh, parity, especially in our rural communities, it's not just access to behavioral health care and coverage for behavioral health care, but truly having local access to the same type of providers and the same type of care that you would for a behavioral health diagnosis as you would a physical health diagnosis. And I'm sure that's something that you guys here a lot about um, in your work as well,
1: and what do you see when you talk about parity and sort of in the relation to, I will say air quote traditional non behavioral health healthcare. Like, what do you see as the biggest differences between someone getting access to healthcare? Let's say if they have a heart, you know, heart disease, versus You know, they have a behavioral health issue and it could be everything from social stigmas to other more kind of practical issues about access to care.
3: Yeah, 100%. So I would say that the vast majority of the conversations that I hear um, in the public arena have to do with access to care, um, coverage of services, having perhaps a limited number of behavioral health sessions where you wouldn't have a limited number of sessions to see a family practice doc or a PCP or something along those lines. So I think that that gets the vast majority of the media attention. But I think parity really truly starts even before there. You know, I, if we look at medical providers, the vast majority of medical providers are paneled with insurance but only 20% of behavioral health providers are paneled with commercial insurance. And so if we're thinking about just the provider networks, provider adequacy, and the number of individuals that we have access to, we already have such a a limited number of behavioral health providers that are participating in that marketplace that it's hard to have true parity.
1: And I would ask another question actually in relation to Lauren's first question, which was <laughs> in a perfect world, what would you, if there were no legal constraints or in other words, what are the legal constraints that you say someone doesn't have access to healthcare or they can't behavioral health, healthcare, or they can't, you know, there, there are certain things that, for example, I'm always telling you that you can and can't do. Right. If you were to like, what would be, let's say your top three or top two things that you wish you would never hear from me again?
3: (laughs) Oh, Emily, I love hearing everything that you tell me, (laughs) but you know, I, I think one of the biggest pieces is the balance between true provision of client centered care and client privacy. You know, I think you and myself and Lauren, we have a lot of conversations about HIPAA and um, the impact of privacy laws and ensuring that we're protecting individuals' information. But the interesting component about HIPAA and maybe how it was created and developed and it was designed to protect individuals um, and prevent discrimination and discrimination against um, behavioral health diagnoses. But I think what providers often seem or see is that Often it gets in the way of care and that I think that we know this is one of the reasons primary care is um, so effective as a behavioral health service delivery mechanism is because the greater picture we have of someone's total health, the greater the health outcomes are going to be, whether that's physical health or um, psychological health. And so, you know, for me, I think if we could really understand why HIPAA is in place and what it's designed to do versus not designed to do, because actually, Emily, I think a lot of our conversations that you and I have are about exceptions to HIPAA, but I don't think a lot of providers are aware
1: of or that HIPAA they really. Exceptions. It's not that they don't care; it's that they're trying to do the best thing for the patient, right. which doesn't necessarily reconcile uh, with the law. And I will say there have been a number of examples, and Casey, maybe you can talk about this, of course, without giving any, <laughs> you know, PHI. Without, without but, right, breaking without, HIPAA. Without breaking yeah. HIPAA. Um, but, you know, the idea of having the, your task forces. And I think that's a good example of what necessarily is the best thing for the patient or to prevent harm to person or public um, doesn't necessarily jive with HIPAA.
2: What's encouraging is there are proposed rules to the HIPAA privacy rule. Um, they had an extended comment period. I think it ended in May of 2021. And so there is a final rule on the horizon that's going to um, amend the privacy rule. And it's been you know, stated that one of the big purposes is to remove the administrative burdens on covered entities and some of the amendments um, do tend to promote greater care coordination and and case management. So it'll be interesting to see what the final rules actually say. However, I think even once the final rules come out, I think there's gonna be a significant period of time to implement any such changes, like the policies and practices that need to go in place, retraining people on the new HIPAA, you know, redoing all of the paperwork that you already have in place complying with HIPAA. So I think, up front it may create additional administrative burdens, but perhaps you know in the in the end game here, these changes to HIPAA will better allow for the holistic patient care that for you know what you're citing to and Emily, sometimes what's in the patient's best interest doesn't necessarily comply with HIPAA, which I don't think in, that was in originally what the rule was supposed to be for, right
3: Yeah. Absolutely. And I think you hit another nail on the head is this fact of the care coordination, um, the navigation, all of these support pieces. And if we're thinking about a greater umbrella of behavioral health reform, most behavioral health providers, like we talked about, are not paneled with insurance, you know, they're doing private pay fee for service type sessions. And so there's, it's very difficult to have a reimbursement mechanism for some of those supportive services that again, align with best patient practice, best care coordination, having conversation with your parents, uh, at the school, how engaged are parents at the school? If you're working with a family or talking with the child's teachers, these are crucial conversations to have all of which Right, are Mm -hmm. involve HIPAA protections, but also this change and prioritizing care coordination rather than just service appointments and procedures.
1: That's right. And I actually think um, more frequently than I would have thought maybe five, 10 years ago, people use HIPAA as an excuse to not disclose information when HIPAA does not apply to them at all. So, for example, uh, there's certainly other laws that apply, but You know, if you want to get access, let's say from a school about a child's mental health, they may say, I can't because of HIPAA. Well, they're not a covered entity. Mm -hmm. So that it's both a hindrance, but also a crutch.
3: Yeah. And I think it's lack of training. I think, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Emily, your conversations that you, myself and Lauren have are so incredibly informative, but I think the vast majority of behavioral health providers don't have extensive HIPAA training. Outside of employment-based training that they may have when they're huh. entering a job at Vale Health, we go through HIPAA training. But if you're not in a covered entity, you may not understand um, those aspects of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: I wonder if if that should fall in part on the state or the federal. I guess the federal government in the case of HIPAA, but to to require you know providers participate in X amount of you know HIPAA training or something. I don't think they have any requirement now, do
1: they? A licensure requirement? That's yeah, like a great a idea. Or
2: something, hmm. yeah.
3: No, I don't think they have any, but I feel like not only would that be a fabulous requirement, I think the behavioral health providers would welcome it because it's only through conversations with you guys that I have actually started to view HIPAA as not such a hindrance and a barrier and that there are allowances to be able to engage in this care coordination. So I think a, a lot of it could mm-hmm. be supported through training,
1: especially through Dora. When you do yeah. your licensure accreditation, it's a great idea, Lauren. Hmm.
2: All right. I'll be uh, calling Dora That's right, <laughs> any
1: day now. Yeah.
2: Right. Um, but yeah, I, I look forward to when the rules come out, the new rule comes out. I don't think they've released anything on, on when it's actually going to come out, but they are trying to get to the heart of that, Casey. The the care coordination and and management. I believe they're calling it. They're going to allow for um, you know PHI to be shared amongst covered entities and other entities that provide air quotes ancillary and health related services. I think is how they're defining that category. But I I, I think it will you know encompass what you're saying. The ability to share you know with the with your children's schools information and other. Organizations in the community that provide services to the patient that may not necessarily fall within treatment. Um, let's jump to our, uh, our next question. Um, so, what can and should be done at the state and federal levels to better, to better allow behavioral health care providers to share patient health information?
3: Well, I think you just, you guys just um, said it. You know, I think better training on understanding. Not just the intention of the laws, um, but you know, I think historically, if you talk about how HIPAA was created and why it why it exists, I think it gives providers a greater understanding rather than this really black and white view of what HIPAA is and what it is not. And you know, I think every behavioral health provider probably, if they were asked to describe HIPAA. It has to do with protections, but then huge fees, if that you break it. So I think that there's this big piece of never wanting to violate HIPAA, which I think is so incredibly important, but that they don't really understand what HIPAA is. And it isn't because I think you're exactly right, Emily, that people often say this is HIPAA protected when it's absolutely not.
1: Right. And I might actually just real quick, while we're talking about the law, (laughs) go off of HIPAA for a second, because... Of course, HIPAA is first and foremost, you know, in the front of our, our mind when we talk about this, but there's a lot of other healthcare care laws. Um, and I think, you know, Casey and Lauren, we were always talking about compliance with the Stark law and compliance with the anti-kickback statute. And I think, Casey, maybe you can talk a little bit about the CMHC that Eagle Valley Behavioral Health was just so fortunate to um, to get that designation from OBH here in Colorado, and about how you can do both big picture or however detailed you wanna get. In a perfect world, if you were to set up that CMHC, that Community Mental Health Center, and to have all of these relationships with other organizations and providers out there, what would that look like in terms of providing the best care, You know, keeping people out of the ED? What does it look like for when I mean, we talk about this all the time, you know, having physician, small physician groups or small FQHCs that, um, that ha- don't have the resources that other entities do? Like, What does that look like from more of a structural perspective in terms of moving money around?
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's such a, it's a huge point. You know, I would say actually in an ideal world, I'm going to go into what your question is, but I'm going to say it in a different way. First is, you know, Eagle Valley behavioral health became a community mental health center um, for a number of reasons. One of them to be, to recognize the great work that has already been happening in our community that our community partners are doing Essentially, a community mental health center is a designation that's awarded through the Office of Behavioral Health that talks about delivering services in a community safety net services. Um, and it, it, it's the entire continuum of care it goes from prevention and education, all the way to emergency and crisis response so it is somebody who is designated to ensure that these services are being delivered for a community in the best way possible. And with that, typically comes some level of funding, but it also comes with it certain designations that you had talked about, Lauren, is this idea that you can provide care coordination service, outreach services, navigation services, all these things that we know are tied to health outcomes. We recognize that prevention services aren't just important to do to our youth, that we have to continue doing prevention services to our entire population so that we can address substance use, um, that we can uh, address mental health and depression and anxiety and that's come up now more importantly than ever with the pandemic. We're seeing more and more employers want to engage in these preventative and educational tools but again it goes back to how traditional reimbursement is structured and typically it's fee-for-service. So without a designation like a community mental health center, your ability to get funding for some of these very, very important health outcome program areas is limited. So I would say if I really had an ideal view of the world, it would be to have reimbursement for some of these important behavioral health services be incredibly community directed um, rather than having to receive a designation in order to get them. But then I think your greater question Is that all of this is tied together? You know, um, again, I'm going to go back to this COVID analogy, but we now see how health can have an impact and we can start to see um, signs of behavioral health deteriorating and then we can see an increase in call volume to our crisis hotlines and we can see a greater amount of patients showing up in our primary care organization or outpatient clinics and so everything is tied together and so the ability to share information for individuals that might be showing sign of concern very very early on which usually that's in our prevention education forums. So if we're doing presentations to schools or workforce, and maybe we have an indication that somebody might be struggling more than normal, it's great to be able to share that information and engage with that inf- that individual early, rather than waiting until they are in crisis and they show up in our emergency room. You know, on a national level, this is um, a time that I think everyone agrees that the emergency room is the probably worst place to treat a behavioral health condition. It's where we're just managing a crisis and it's the most um, costly to the individual. It's the most costly to the community. And uh, in terms of risk, it's the highest risk for that patient. And so we're trying to make sure that we can catch these individuals early and often. And when we have that umbrella of care that you're talking about, Emily, that's where we can catch individuals but it's also what you spoke of is there's lots of typically i guess there's lots of silos that keep that information separate and within each organization rather than seen as a continuum of care
1: and who should pay for that because i'm sitting here thinking you know if someone's having a bad day or if they're having a series of bad days and they need to get help i mean one thing i guess one way to think about it is your Insurance should pay for it. Of course, those of us on a high deductible health plan, we're <laughs> ultimately paying for it. But I also think, especially you know, Casey, as you know, I I'm very um, have strong ties to um, the Vale Valley. And There's, I would say, I, I'd love to actually. You probably have some data. The number of individuals there that are either uninsured or those that are sort of seasonal workers that are underinsured. And those individuals probably have a hard time when the cost of living is so high, right? And the wages aren't keeping in touch with that. But then you also have someone saying, well, you can see someone for $100 for 30 minutes. I mean, that's a hard burden.
3: Well, a hundred percent, you know, it's interesting because we do in, in our community, we have one of the highest rates of uninsured, one of the highest rates of underinsured, and we have a behavioral health scholarship program. Um, It's called Olivia's fund, where we can provide behavioral health services for those that qualify with a financial need. But one of the interesting pieces of that, the vast majority of the individuals who apply for that have insurance. So what we're recognizing is what you touched upon before is even if you are insured, that that high deductible or maybe the co-insurance that goes along with it or the copay becomes so unobtainable that really it, your access is still incredibly limited. So I think you're yeah I think that's exactly right.
2: Yeah, and it, it's interesting to me because I feel like there's still potentially a stigma around behavioral health or we're still coming to the realization that preventative care and access to behavioral health is the same priority as your physical health like you know if there's a hundred dollar you know fee to see one therapist for an hour versus going to your doctor for some you know physical Mm -hmm. ailment i feel like i don't know people still may be inclined to spend the money for the physical ailment and maybe not realizing you know, my, my behavior, my mental health is being affected and could be, you know, causing the physical ailments I'm experiencing, but I don't know. It's just, it's just interesting to me that, um, I just think the two areas, physical health and behavioral health are still siloed. And I, maybe we are now starting to see them come so. together. And especially because of the pandemic right. and with kiddos in particular, I mean, there's just been, you know, all of us have been impacted. By, mm-hmm. the, by COVID. But I, I feel like kids in particular are having to cope with things that they never have had before. And, um, you know, that ability to have access to behavioral health care should be there and ability
1: to pay should not be an issue. No. And I think that, you know, the sort of COVID and kid issue really is a big behavioral health one. I mean, as her parent, I have the authority to say <laughs> this about my daughter, but she is a good girl. She's seven years old and she's really I think she's had some challenges because, you know, masks are a good thing, but you can't see someone's face. And sort of it starts at a young age of learning the social and emotional cues and 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 what that means for for a young person trying to sort of find their way through this world to um, to understand what that means. And I think COVID COVID is a huge issue. And I think going to your point, Lauren and Casey, about sort of the stigma of behavioral health. I mean, I think part of it, of course, is this is nothing new, but if you had a cancer diagnosis, you wouldn't just say, Oh, just deal with it. Buckle down, Mm -hmm, right. right. Buckle down and grit your teeth and bear, bear it. And I think, um, I think with, I mean, as attorneys, we are, you know, we're probably the worst at this. Yeah, It's uh, I mean, I, I think the, the rate of depression amongst attorneys is probably one of the highest in any, uh, in any profession. I mean, we're, we're doing great here, but, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but I do think that it, it is that issue, right. Of saying, it's not, everyone has hard days, but I'm having a series or a pattern of really hard days. And when do I say, I really, I need to get some help. And I think EAP programs can be the number one way that can be benefits for it's at least a start benefits for employers to provide to their employees about saying, you need to talk with someone, even if it's just one time to blow off some steam, you know, but you can't just grin and bear it.
3: Well, and I think what you guys are both describing is a perspective shift. It's this idea that we've always viewed behavioral health as something is going wrong and you go to therapy to manage that symptom rather than viewing behavioral health as a preventative tool of if we have stronger coping skills and better emotional regulation skills that we're gonna be better really at everything in our entire life from parenting to our performance at work. And, you know, the EAP model, I actually, Emily, I love that you brought that up because I, I agree. I think that that really embraces it is here's X amount of sessions that you can use, whether something is wrong, or if you just want to talk about being better at something at work or whatever's going on with you, it takes away that stigma, it takes away the need to feel like you have a diagnosis to have to utilize
1: it. Yeah. that something needs to get to like a crisis level. I do feel like, I mean, Dr. Wolfington, you are a clinical psych psychologist. I feel like Lauren and I are having a therapy (laughs) session right now. Oh, I
2: love it. I love it. EAPs are starting to provide, or is it still kind of the outlier? I think so.
1: No, I think they are.
3: Yeah. And I think it's how the view is because, you know, again, I, I love the history of some of this, but EAPs were originally created you know, in the 1960s and 70s, because it was commonplace for individuals in certain professions to have work meetings that engaged in alcohol. And so they recognized that they were somewhat contributing to a problem of their employees. And so that's how it started. But so many um, companies have embraced it now of just saying, we want you to be your best self, and this is going to help you engage in better performance at work, better relationships with your colleagues. And so I think instead of having it viewed as this is something that's a deterrent, that it feels like it's just um, something that someone has to do or they're doing because something's wrong at work, I think about how it's being marketed, and it's this is about performance. And if we look at professional athletes, like the vast majority of professional athletes have a sports psychologist. They have a performance coach. They have someone that's helping them get through.
1: I, honestly, it sounds ridiculous, but that is such a great point. They, you know, professional athletes have a sports psychologist. Other professionals should have a, an attorney psychologist. I'm serious. Yeah, yeah, I think that is a it's actually really good food for thought you know?
3: Yeah. Interesting. Yep. Absolutely. Well, and at Vail Health, you know, we launched this Mountain Strong EAP and a lot of it is focused on healthcare specific support and it was launched right before COVID. And I would say that I feel like it's an incredible saving grace of having individuals that understand the stress of being a healthcare worker, understand the different phases of this pandemic and what that has meant for varying healthcare workers. And I think that has really impacted our ability to, um, especially being in the mountains where we've been hot spots at um, various times, you know, lately with Omicron. I think it's really changed the mindset of staff. And I think it's also given leadership the ability to feel like they have a tool to help support individuals.
1: That's perfect. And um, yeah, I, I think it's a really important tool and I hope that more organizations adopt that. And I will say we have I, we have about five minutes left, which is also important because we are having an automatic required restart <laughs> on our computer in about eight minutes, <laughs> so this will be good timing. So, Lauren, I know you have another one or two really important questions. We'd love to hear. Um, yeah, to I think on.
2: since we already sort of you know discussed um, behavioral health and 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 minors, but. Um, Casey, I'd love to, you know, briefly discuss issues with treating minors that are unique to behavioral health and sort of what created these issues.
3: Yes, you know, I think Oftentimes, the issues that are created are a result of really well-intended individuals, right? Isn't that always the case? Um, you know, originally, we had laws in effect or statutes in effect, you guys will tell me the right term, but that allowed the provision of services um, for eight uh, or 15 plus, which is interesting because when we think about adults who can consent to services or, you um, consent to different things, you think about the age of 18. So even just having a different age um, for behavioral health providers, it can be confusing. And then in 2019, that age of consent was reduced to 12, which is fabulous because the intention behind that is to ensure um, students that are in school can access behavioral health services without having um, the impact of a parent, especially if the parent is contributing to behavioral health hardship. So the intention is really great, but again, the way laws are written, it can be very confusing. And some of the wording of the laws leave a lot to interpretation as a behavioral health provider may um allow someone 12 plus to consent for services and i will say as a behavioral health provider as emily mentioned i'm a psychologist sometimes we like our rules to be pretty black and white so so does that mean all 12 year olds is that some 12 year olds what does that mean for bills what does that mean for insurances and you know parents can still access files up until someone's 18 and so what privacy can you really guarantee someone who is 12 plus plus? and do you want the parents not to be involved because as you guys both know parents have a pretty big role in a 12 to 18 year old's life and so should they be involved with care
1: if they're lucky they do yeah, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> depending on the day, maybe.
3: No, that's true. That's true. And so I think the biggest thing, Lauren, going back to your question is there's a lot of different laws. There's a lot of different change and so much is left to interpretation that it makes it really confusing.
2: Mm-hmm. So how do behavioral health providers navigate, you know, the complexity of the laws and interpretation? Is it just kind of a judgment call? Do organizations tend to have, you know, here's our best practice or a policy of how you address, you know, treatment of, of minors or. Is the attorney always on call, I guess?
3: <laughs> well, for me, you guys are always on call, which I feel so lucky, lucky for. Um, but I would say that every provider adopts their own policy. And that again is what makes it very hard is if I'm a patient, I may call one provider and get a response. And then I may feel like services are not available to me even though that's that one organization's policy or that one provider's policy. Um, and so, you know, I think that that's the piece that's hard too, is, um, when someone's seeking care. I think that they're at their most vulnerable and so if we have a 12 year old and they call one provider they make themselves vulnerable and try to seek out care and they say nope i need your parents permission that's my policy regardless of the law it might shut down their ability to even make another call for care even though there might be someone else out there that really engages in that um, best practice of providing services for 12 plus
1: plus. and i know we're all parents on this call so Yeah. On the flip side, I think it requires parents to have a lot of trust in their community providers.
3: Yeah. Yeah. If this
1: were to move forward.
3: Well, and it actually goes back to what you talked about real quick, Emily. Too is if you can think about behavioral health as prevention, and that maybe engaging a kiddo in services before something's wrong, maybe then a relationship established and it makes it easier to access care.
1: That's right. And on that note, I will say, I think we are just about out of time, but um, Casey, we can't thank you enough for all of the insight and kind of thought leadership you've put into this and certainly for what you've put together in the Eagle River Valley for the community there. It's really, um, it's really one of a kind. And on that note, thank you, Lauren. And I will say back to you, Judy.
0: Thank you, Emily and Lauren. And thank you, Dr. Wolfington, for a great discussion. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Healthcare Law Today podcast, your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare industry. Healthcare Law Today is a monthly program, and we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or to Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtoday.com. If you like this show, don't forget to subscribe and be sure to rate us five stars. Until next time on the Healthcare Law Today podcast, I'm Judy Waltz at Foley & Lardner. We appreciate you joining us.